Reading this morning is from uh, Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 11. So setting sail from Choras, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city on the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman called Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She'd follow Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Skip to verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is God's word. We, we, um, we've been looking at this, this uh, amazing book in the Bible called Acts. And we've been actually taking our time through it, going real slow through it from January. And we're coming into land, actually, um, because there's so, much, there's so much richness in there. And uh, the reason why we're taking our time through the book of Acts is because it's all about the early church. It's about what happened at the start, you know, when they first knew Jesus and first uh, realized the gospel was true. And so for us as a, as a church that's just starting out, it's a new church as well, um, it's something that uh, is really uh, just, just close to our hearts. And so we're taking this time to look at it um, to see what, made the early church tick and therefore what should be our heartbeat you know uh, what should be closest to to our heart um, and so uh, we've mentioned a few times this morning already uh, we want to be good at evangelism as a church we want to be really proficient in telling the good news and sharing it uh, in word and with deed uh, of, of Jesus and what he's done that's what evangelism is it's, it's telling the good news it is news that, that saves, it's news that transforms. Um, and, and, and what I want to try and show you today from, from this uh, scripture text that Jacob has, has read for us is that there is no one type of person out there who's like the religious type who's easy, easily converted. 
Um, I want this to, to show you and encourage you. There's no one type of person that we're setting ourselves up to reach um, because this passage shows this amazing diversity in a, in a church right at the start, right at the start. And people from all different backgrounds and uh, came together. And it's just so diverse. And I want to pull that out and show you um, so that, first of all, you can be encouraged. Um, if you know people in your life who are not believers or if you are not a believer uh, and you think you're not the religious type, may this passage encourage you and challenge you that you don't, there is no such thing as a religious type. People come from all backgrounds. And it also shows us the power of Jesus um, as we go out as, as, as his church and, and share the good news. Um, we sometimes think we we're going to avoid certain types of people because they're too far away you know, they're too hard to reach. And again, I just want you to be encouraged um, that Jesus has power to save and transform and unite the most bizarre, diverse types of people you could ever think about. And he puts them together in this group of people called the church. And that's awesome. And it's exciting and it's fearsome as well. And so I want you to be encouraged and strengthened by, by this. So there's no set piece. There's no standard method that we are going to uh, use as a church because we want to be good and effective. We want to be aware of who's out there and we just want to be responsive. But yet, uh, just, just, um, there's not going to be like a method, so to speak. Okay, so what I want to show you today from this passage is that evangelism, number one, is gospel-centered. Evangelism, number two, is spirit-empowered. And can you guess what the third one is? Evangelism is? Community yeah, community on mission. All right. And these are the three things that we've been seeing through the book of Acts that are woven through um, like, a, like, a, you know, like a central uh, theme, gospel-centered, spirit-empowered, community on mission. That's what the early church was. That's what we are. Well, that's what we're, by the grace of God, becoming. So evangelism is gospel-centered. And by the way, when I, when I split these three things apart, it's not because there's three types of evangelism. It's like there's three facets all right of the same thing three sides of the triangle it's all the same it's all evangelism but the particular facet i want to look at is that number one it's gospel centered backgrounds before we jump in backgrounds um paul you remember from last week if you were with us paul and his team were, were experiencing some level of frustration and disappointment they their, their, their second missionary journey um, didn't start well, not as well as the first one. Uh, they, they started under a cloud of disappointment and discouragement with a breakup, a bust up. Uh, they tried to get into various Roman uh, provinces within the Roman Empire. They couldn't get in. The Spirit of Jesus didn't let them. They wanted to share the gospel and for whatever reason they just couldn't work it out. And so God, uh, as we saw towards the end of last week, gave us this vision uh, to Paul in the middle of the night. It was a man from Macedonia, which is another province, uh, another part of the Roman Empire. And, and in this vision, uh, this man of Macedonia said to Paul, come over and help us. And so they did that straight away. They hopped on a boat and, and um, sailed to Macedonia. And we can see then, this is, where, this is where it takes us, the beginning of our text is the journey they took. And it says there, they ended up in, in, in verse 12, in Philippi, which is the, or a, leading city uh, in the district of Macedonia. It's one of the main cities, one of the influential cities. And it says Macedonia is a Roman colony. It's a Roman colony, which is, which is important to know because um, a colony was a very special geographic territory. It was essentially considered to be an outpost of Rome itself. It was so tightly uh, related to Rome, to the great uh, center of the Roman Empire, that if you were born in Macedonia, you were therefore, by definition, a Roman citizen. If you lived in Macedonia, you know, it's, it's effectively like you were living in Rome itself. 
the, the laws uh, were, were, were the exact same. Um, the, the rights and uh, privileges of being a, a, a Roman citizen were granted to you if you lived or were born in a Roman colony. So that's, that's essentially what we see here. And in the middle of this important uh, geographic location is an important city called Philippi. And so Paul and his pals went off with fresh hope, having received this vision from God, a fresh calling, fresh encouragement to the mission. It says in verse 13, uh, they appeared in, in Philippi and uh, remained in the city some days. Verse 13, on the Sabbath, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. See, it seems to be that Paul and his pals would have gone, when they came to a new city, they would have gone to the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue in that city. But here they don't do that. They go outside and they meet a, a group of women on the riverside. And, and scholars believe that this is because there was simply no synagogue in Philippi. There was no Jewish presence. And so Paul's sort of ordinary routine of going to the Jewish synagogue first to preach the gospel couldn't do that. So he had to roll with it. He had to be flexible. And he ended up going outside um, where there was no, if there was traditionally no synagogue, um, a group of, 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 of God worshippers would meet on the riverside. And that's exactly what we see here. Uh, we see this group of women come together, um, uh, evidently to pray and to worship God. And so this is where we meet then our first character, if you like, our first um, uh, convert in this, in this set of three conversions that we see in, in this scripture. Uh, Lydia, she's called. She's from a city uh, called, or from a region called, Thy a city called Thyatira in the region of Asia. If you were with us last week, you remember again, Asia was, uh, was kind of close to Paul's heart. He tried to get into Asia and he, he, he was prevented by God from getting to Asia. Who's the first person he meets in Philippi? It's not someone who's from Philippi, it's someone who's from Asia. You know, if God can't allow, won't allow Paul to go into Asia, he'll bring Asia to Paul. Not the way Paul intended, but anyway, that's just a, a, side, a side issue, but encouraging nonetheless. Um, so here we are, Lydia from, from Thyatira. Um, she was one of these women who'd come together to pray and to worship. Uh, she couldn't go to the synagogue because there wasn't one. So the next best thing was to get together with like-minded women and pray and, uh, and all that on the, on the riverside, which is great. And it says that Lydia here is a seller of purple goods. That was her occupation or her, her career, seller of purple goods. Uh, I don't want you to get in your mind that she had some sort of stall in the local market and all of that stuff happened to be purple, uh, like some sort of niche, uh, you know, uh, market stall, all the same color. Although that would be cool. But uh, the point is that she was a seller of purple goods. Purple goods, purple dye, purple linen, purple fabric was incredibly prized. It was highly sought after. It was very expensive. Only the most affluent and well-off people could afford it for themselves. If you wanted to look good, if you wanted to stand out from uh, all of your all of your neighbors, then you bought you know, a, a lovely purple um, frock or a, a lovely purple pair of trousers if, if, you, know, if you want trousers. And uh, you, know, you would look great, you'd stand out from the crowd. And so she was a dealer of purple fabric, uh, most likely either an agent for a larger company back in Asia where she's from, or even she was the owner of this business. She was the importer exporter for uh, this, this, this great uh, trade. Uh, she was evidently skilled in buying and selling. She would have negotiated trade deals and complex uh, negotiations with, with other tradespeople in, in the area. So she was obviously a person who is a great businesswoman. Uh, and and as, as, we, as we presume, she uh, you know, uh, was very successful. She owned her own property. 
Uh, one thing that people have noted, by the way, is that there's no, no mention of a husband or a, a man. So for a woman to actually own and, and uh, her own property was very unusual uh, back, in, back in those days. And, and, and not only that, she had a household. You know, she had family with her, but she evidently had staff as well. So she's a prosperous, uh, successful businesswoman. Highly articulate and uh, able in her career. And as we read, she underwent a conversion to Christianity. Uh, as the scripture goes on, it says that she, in verse 15, she, she was baptized, uh, her, not just her, but her household. You know, baptism is when someone goes into the water and they, they sort of like a, a formal marking of that person, uh, that they belong to Jesus. Uh, they have given them, her, him, their allegiance. That's what baptism's all about. So the question we're going to ask and, and focus on just now is how did this all happen? How did this wealthy, uh, able businesswoman hear the gospel and give her life to Jesus so quickly? Well, the answer is right there in verse 14. It says there, um, you know, she was a worshiper of God, but it meant that she was a f familiar with God, but didn't, didn't have a faith uh, in Jesus per se. She was familiar with God. And it says there in verse 14, the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus, every time the Lord is mentioned, it's referring to Jesus, the Lord Jesus opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord worked to open her heart, to pay attention, to listen to what Paul was saying, to, to take it in, to think it through, to allow it to, 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 to go around in her head, you know, uh, to hear the message of the gospel of Jesus and then to accept it. You know what, that, that's true, that's right. I trust that. God knew, as he does for all of us, he knew what she needed. He knew where she was at in her relationship with him, or lack of. He knew her thoughts. He knew her questions. He knew exactly that she needed time to hear and believe and, 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 and rationalize everything she was hearing. And that is exactly what happened through Paul and Silas and the rest of the team when they met her. Paul just happened to be in the right place at the right time, and he spoke the gospel to her when the opportunity presented it. And he probably said something like this to her and the other women. You know, God made himself available to all of you. He, he made himself clear to you. He has come to you. You know yourself that your wealth and your success are not enough, he would have said. You know that ultimately you want God himself. Well, he has come to you. He has given you his own son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Jesus Christ lived a perfect, flawless life, a beautiful life. He obeyed God's law perfectly, completely. And yet he went to the cross and he died in your place for your sin. And God did this for you so that you can know him and you can be forgiven by him and you can enjoy him forever and you can enter into his presence and receive life. Paul would have said something like that. He would have listened to her questions. He would have answered them carefully. He would, have, he would have shown her how Jesus was the fulfillment and the completion of all that God had said in the, in the Old Testament, in the Jewish scriptures. And, and, and through this process of reasoning and thinking and teaching and, and, and receiving, Lydia received the truth about Jesus. It came home to her. It caught fire within her. Jesus not only did all this, but he did it for me. And she was convinced and she was one and she was intellectually satisfied. Of course, it's true. She would have said something like that. It all fits together. 
you know, we can consider the conversion of Lydia as a quiet conversion. You know, we've seen throughout our studies in the book of Acts, people coming to Jesus from all sorts of backgrounds with all sorts of signs and wonders and miracles and, and sickness being healed. We've seen the Holy Spirit coming upon the church on the day of Pentecost. We've seen Samaritans uh, speaking in tongues when they've received the Holy Spirit. We've seen Cornelius, the first outsider, you know, Gentile, to receive the Spirit. We've seen dramatic and visible and undeniable signs that people have come to faith in Jesus and received the Spirit. But we don't see that here. We see this quiet conversion, that Jesus simply opened her mind and her heart to hear and accept and believe. And that's it. Now look, that's not to say, by the way, that there's no role of the Holy Spirit here, that he wasn't active, because every, the Holy Spirit's always active when someone puts their trust in Jesus. That's how they put their trust in Jesus. But this quiet conversion should give us hope and encouragement that the, the, the Jesus works in the ordinary ways of bringing people to himself and the extraordinary ways of bringing people to himself. He's capable of all of those things and everything else and, and much more in addition. And maybe this happened to you. Maybe you're someone who, who just uh, with time heard the good news of Jesus like Lydia and, and, and one day you look back and you think, actually, yeah, I, I do believe, I do trust this is, this is something that I have accepted. And, you know, sometimes we feel a bit ashamed about that because there is no flashing lights or miracles or, or words from God to accompany your conversion to Jesus. But Lydia is a, a woman who shows that, that uh, the ordinary way that God can work in people's lives, just opening their hearts, listening to the truth and accepting it. And that's wonderful and amazing. You see, folks, evangelism is gospel centered it is centered around the gospel it's the good news it's telling the good news and we tell the good news fully expecting people to listen to it and accept it and say yeah that's that's right that's why as a church we are gospel centered we are a church we are a group of people who are deeply convicted deeply affected by the gospel we cling tightly to the message of the gospel and that's why every Sunday, through the message that is preached from where I am stood just now, you will always hear the good news of Jesus spoken. So that whether you are a regular here or whether you are coming from the outside and it's your first time at church, you will hear the gospel in a way that you can hopefully, Lord willing, understand and, and come to faith if you are not of faith already. We do this every week because we are gospel centers. It's the gospel, folks, that not only creates us and makes us who we are as a church, but it's the gospel that keeps us and sustains us, the spirit working through uh, those truths about Jesus. And so we go deeper into uh, what God has done for us in Christ. We go further in. We go off of the shallow end and into the deep end. And that's why we talk about Jesus every week, not just in the preaching, but even in our service structure, in our, you know, some Christians call this liturgy, shapes the, the, you know, the, it's defined by the gospel. It, it retells the gospel every week in some way, shape or form. In our discipleship, we're talking about the gospel. When I meet with you on a one-to-one, -one, I'm trying to figure out as your pastor, how can I, how can I get you uh, to see Jesus more, more amazing? How, how, can, how can I push the truths of the gospel deeper into your, your hearts? How can we take this in together? See, as a people we are shaped and defined by the gospel evangelism is gospel-centered 
I hope that encourages you. I hope that encourages you. It's the message that saves, not you. Number two, evangelism is spirit-empowered. Spirit-empowered. Um, we, we, we jump ahead a little bit in the story to return to the middle bit last. Um, but evangelism is spirit-empowered. Paul and Silas were in trouble in Philippi for their gospel ministry. They had performed an exorcism on a, on a, on a young woman that we'll look at in a minute, ridded her of, of, of uh, an evil spirit. They were preaching the gospel. They got in trouble with the local authorities, and they end up um, in the slammer, in, in jail. And they're put away, and there's a jailer. We don't know his name. Um, and, uh, and, and he was uh, in charge of their imprisonment. Likely, uh, he was a, a military veteran himself, uh, probably did several tours of duty, uh, involved on the battlefield at various points in his life as a younger man, uh, you know, maintaining the integrity of the empire, keeping the enemies at bay or, or quashing uprisings or something. He had experience. He knew what he was talking about. He was a hard man. He was an experienced man. And quite often, um, as you get to the, sort of the, the later parts of your career, um, people would go into private you know, private contractors, security sector, that kind of thing. And so his job in Philippi was to keep an eye on the crooks and the troublemakers, anyone who was going to bring trouble or disrepute on the mighty nation of Rome. And here we see Paul and Silas uh, in prison for preaching the gospel, and yet their behavior can be described as, frankly, odd, weird. Because there they are, it says in the middle of the night, in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas... They're in jail, right? Okay, they've been beaten with rods. They've been put in these stocks, their arms and their feet put in stocks. So they're in the most awkward, uncomfortable position where they were going to stay all day and all night. And here they are in verse 25. It says they were singing and pr praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. I've, I've never been in prison, um, except I was at Alcatraz as a tourist, but I was never in, you know, incarcerated there. But the thought that people will be singing hymns and praying to God out of a heart full of joy, um, having been treated terribly, is just bizarre to me. But there they are, in stocks, praying to God and singing, utter madness. The prisoners were listening. And what happened next, no one was expecting. No one could have predicted this. It says in verse 26, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, right? But it's not just any earthquake. It was a massive earthquake, but not just any earthquake. Foundations were shaken. It says all the doors were open. What do you know? Everyone's bonds, you know, their shackles were unfastened. What kind of an earthquake is that? I've actually um, been in an earthquake in a, a Greek island. I was on holiday. Um, we woke up in the middle of the night and um, there was stuff in our room that was, that was on the top of the table was now on the floor. There was glasses smashed just because, you know, there was, I actually thought there was someone in our room. So I, was, I woke up and I was in sort of, uh, you know, pugilistic mood. I was going to, I don't know, I don't know what I was going to do. But anyway, I thought someone was in there. going to protect my wife, that kind of thing. Try. And, um, and yet it turns out there's no one in our room. It was, it was, it was an earthquake. Um, just some, sh you know, tremors from, um, from miles away. Uh, very scary indeed. Uh, but the thought that that, that that would have suddenly opened all of our doors and, you know, uh, uh, and removed our shackles. Something else is going on here, folks. It's not just an ordinary earthquake. It goes from being all well to suddenly dozens of prisoners were free from their shackles and able to flee if they wanted to. So what's going on? It says there, uh, anyway, in verse 27, that the jailer, uh, this military vet, suddenly awoke and, and instantly he read the situation and he knew the disaster was upon him. 
Uh, the prisoners, he thought to himself, must have run for it. And that meant he just knew instantly, if they get away, that means I'm done for. I've had it. I'm a dead man. And so within a millisecond, thoughts start rushing into his mind. He knew what the authorities would do to him if they found that he'd let these prisoners away. He knew how they would treat his family. He knew how they would all be made to pay for their indiscretion. He knew that he'd be better off dead. He couldn't live with the shame of screwing up so badly and so he'd do the decent thing, the honourable thing. He picked up his sword. He was going to take his own life because that way his family might get off lightly. And so there he was, po poised with this sword, about to plunge a, a dagger or something into his heart. And Paul cried out in a loud voice, he says in verse 28, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here, all the prisoners, still here. Verse 29, this military hard man, this veteran, this jailer, called for lights. He rushed in, trembling with fear, fell down before Paul and Silas. This man has been reduced from a pile of muscle to a lump of jelly. Scared, shaking, weeping perhaps. A hard man, not given to moments or outbursts of emotion or what he would see as weakness, but there he was. See, as a soldier, he, he knew how to give respect to his superiors. And you know, the higher the officer that stood before you, the greater the respect that you pay them. So here he is, this cowering shape, trembling before two of his prisoners, giving them the kind of respect that you would only give to a god. And there he is, in pieces on the floor before them. And he says, between, you know, chattering teeth and, and, and wet eyes, he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This jailer, don't know his name, hadn't heard the gospel yet. Not like Lydia. He didn't have chance to sit there and process it and rationalize it and think it through. But he saw the signs. He experienced something mighty, something divine. He knew some terrible spiritual power had been moving in that place. And so he comes on hands and feet and says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul responds in verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. But not just you, your whole household, family, staff, you name it. They will all be saved if they also believe in Jesus. This is how you can respond. But then do you notice in verse 32, straight away, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. They spoke the gospel to him, the jailer, and to everybody who lived with him. They heard the gospel. You see, the jailer had an encounter with the power of God. Um, he had seen God at work firsthand. He had experienced him and it was terrifying. And God, through that experience, broke open his heart and broke open his mind. For Lydia, it was a quiet opening of her mind to receive and understand and believe. For the jailer, he needed an earthquake of divine origin to reach him, open him so that he might receive the gospel. Can you see how radically different their conversion stories are. You see, folks, evangelism is gospel-centered, but it's also spirit-empowered. And, and we've seen this. Uh, it's because the spirit-empowered church 
is spirit empowered. That's why the good news goes out. We've been seeing that week after week in the book of, of Acts. We've seen healings of lame people, people dropping dead. We've seen people being raised to life, uh, Gentiles being filled with the spirit. We've seen prophecies, visions, God, the Holy Spirit being powerful and present in his church, mighty and magnificent through signs and wonders and, and, and earthquakes to get his point across. See, folks, as the gospel advances, some people that you will know and reach, and we will reach, need to see the power of God before they will listen to the message of God. They need to experience, let's say, some kind of earthquake to shake them out of their unbelief and the situation that they are in so that they will become open to the gospel. And folks, that's what it means. That's part of what it means for us to be a spirit empowered church we're a church that not just believes in the holy spirit every church has to believe in the holy spirit by the way but we don't, we don't just believe that he exists or he does stuff out there we don't even just believe that he can do remarkable things although he can but we are a church that trusts that he wants to do remarkable things among us in the local church that it is normal for the local church to be spirit-empowered and to regularly see and experience him moving among us. And so being spirit-empowered means that we pray for and anticipate and prepare for such things among us. You know, Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He's talking specifically about the spiritual gift of prophecy but i think we can apply this generally to any sort of work of the holy spirit any any miraculous sign of the holy spirit he says if 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 if, if people are doing this in the local church and if an unbeliever or, or outsider comes in he says uh this person is convicted by everything he sees he's called account to all uh, by all sorry the secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face he will worship god and declare that god is really among you. See, a spirit-empowered church manifests the power of God and points to God. There is so much that we cannot control about this. We cannot uh, expect earthquakes <clears throat> uh, on a regular basis, but we can, as a church, pray and ask God to move in power among us. For, for the Spirit of God to demonstrate His presence among us, we can hunger after Him. We can anticipate His work as we gather uh, we, can, we can anticipate the power of the Spirit as we pray for the sick and ask for miracles and use gifts of prophecy so that outsiders coming in and we ourselves can see and experience the power of God. We prayed for Marion, those of us um, who are at the members meeting. We had a members meeting on Tuesday. We prayed for Marion who's been having terrible facial pain from dental work. And uh, she's, she's had it for weeks now. Really distracting really sore, the sort of pain that you can't take away with painkillers. It's just there all the time. You want to scratch your eyes out, it's that bad. So we prayed for her together as a membership. And she's away now. She's away in Cherish, the, the women's conference, and spoke to her on Friday and Saturday. And I said, how's your pain? And she said, 95% gone. How cool is that? Evangelism is spirit-empowered. God moves in power. Finally, thirdly, evangelism is community on mission. Let's look at the final case study. It's the bit in between. You may wonder why we jumped over. We're going to return now to 
the third case study, the third conversion, the slave girl. <clears throat> I'm doing this, inverted commas, the slave girl, because again, we don't know her name. We don't know anything about her, really. In fact, the fact we know nothing about her suggests that she has, she has no background or origin, or, or we don't know where she's from. We just know that she is a girl, a young woman at best, and she was a slave, meaning she was someone else's property. She belonged to someone. International Justice Mission estimate that of the 40 plus million people who are caught up in modern slavery, one in four are children. And so I think we're seeing here the ancient equivalent to that terrifying statistic, this young slave girl. And so she's someone's property. That's all we know of her. And tells us in 16b, the second half of verse 16, she had a spirit of divination which enabled her to tell people's fortune. She could somehow predict the future. And... As such, because of this peculiar gift or skill that she had, she was worth money to those who owned her. She would generate an income for them. She made money that she doubtless did not see herself, that went straight into their pocket. That's what slaves do, right? But it says that she had this spirit of divination. That means that she was possessed by a spirit. She had a, uh, what we describe as an evil or an unclean spirit in her that gave her spiritual power. Real spiritual power. In fact, we covered this a few weeks ago in Acts 13, a sermon called Spiritual Darkness, Spiritual Power. We saw that when the gospel advances, uh, the, the forces of darkness will be active and they will be in opposition to the church. And so we see that again here. And this girl, slave girl, um, filled with this, uh, or possessed by this spirit, was following Paul and the team around for many days shouting out, these are servants of the Most High God, they're proclaiming the way of salvation. Which, on the surface, is, is right, it's true, and it sounds like a positive thing to say. But she kept it up for many days. It was a, it was a distraction. Everybody knew that she was possessed by an evil spirit. She had this weirdo spiritual power, and here she is, sort of almost associating herself with the apostles, and, and most likely it was unwanted publicity distraction from hearing the true gospel and it says there in verse 19 Paul was greatly annoyed probably not at the girl herself but at the spirit that was in her tormenting her oppressing her and he turned around and said to her or oh, the spirit I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her and it came out that very hour right away see the slave girl whoever she is she was under oppression from two masters. She had her human masters, those who owned her, that paid money for her, and she was generating an income for them. But for them, she was property. She was an object to fulfill a certain job, but nothing more. They couldn't care less about her. That's her first master, but her second master was a spiritual one. It was a, a demon or an evil spirit that possessed her that also owned her. And so whether it's from her human master or from her spiritual master, she was utterly dehumanized. She was a piece of property, pretty much a non-entity, a thing. She was a slave. She was not loved or valued or accepted. She was the lowest of the low. 
She was a slave to our human owners. She was a slave to the dark forces of this world. And so Paul turns around and rids her of her spiritual master. She is now free. But as it sometimes is when it comes to evangelism and people being transformed by Jesus, in terms of their day-to-day experience, sometimes things get worse before they get better. What do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 19. It says, when her owners saw her, do you have that on your sheet, verse 19? If you don't, I'll read it to you. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them uh, before the rulers, and then that's how they end up in prison. See, when her human owners realize that she is no longer under oppression by this evil spirit, they think she's even more worthless than she was a few moments ago. Paul did a good thing. He did a right thing. He, he commanded the spirit to release this young woman from its grips, and that's good. He, he would have said something like, you know, it's the name of Jesus who is victorious over all the powers of, of darkness and Satan. It's by his blood, it's by his resurrection from the dead. Because of that, the Spirit will go. And it went. All things are under Jesus Christ. He has the name above every name. All authority on heaven and earth is given to him. Of course he can rid people of demons. And that's what happened. And so she was free from this spiritual oppression in the name of Jesus. But look, she was no longer wanted or needed by her owners. She was probably kicked out as a piece of rubbish, surplus to requirements. In some ways, she was worse than she was before. And folks, this is all we hear of her. We never find out her name. We never hear what happened next. We never even hear explicitly in the text of her conversion to Jesus. But commentators on this passage point out that her story is wedged between these two overt conversion stories, Lydia and the jailer, both of whom experienced the power of God. She, the slave girl, experienced the power of God also. And we are to conclude from that, they say, that she came to Christ just as they did and joined the community of faith just as they did because that is what she needed just as they did. But look, the slave girl needed to belong somewhere. You can't save someone into a bubble. When I, when I went to Ghana and I saw the work of International Justice Mission rescuing uh, kids from um, slavery on the, on the lake, they were you know, entrapped, um, children as young as four or five, working in the fishing industry, it was no good for IJM to just go along and snatch these kids and set them back on the shore and say, right, you've been rescued, on you go. IJM know, and I saw firsthand, that after a child is rescued, there starts then a process of years and years and years, if not decades of restoration, of, 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 of building trust, of re-establishing connection with community, of of. of reconciliation of of healing and so this slave girl here she couldn't just be sort of delivered from the spirit that had her grip on her and then delivered into nothing she needed to experience that life that is free from abuse and slavery she needed to know what it's like to be treated as something other than property she needed to know love she needed to know care she needed to receive dignity and honor she needed to learn how to trust other people and to be trusted 
to be empowered and to know equality. We said a few weekends ago, a few Sundays ago, in the kingdom of God, in the church, there is no little people. There is no higher and lower Christians. People from all backgrounds, saved by faith, united to Jesus. And this slave girl needed to be in such a community. See, evangelism, folks, is community on mission. As this text is showing us, we, are, we will meet people from incredibly diverse and challenging backgrounds. People who have been oppressed by spirits. People who have been oppressed by humans. We may not know it at first. You know, most often if you, if you meet such a person in the street, they will look normal to you. You will not instantly think this individual is possessed by a spirit or, or owned by human beings. Because there is no such thing really as a stereotypical slave. Perhaps such individuals, no matter what their background or the, if they've been formally trafficked or, or, or treated as such within their community, often they've gotten good at putting on a brave face. Holding it together somehow so that you and I, as we pass them in the street, don't know what's really going on behind closed doors. But my experience in the medical world in A&E and Marion's experience as a GP, we both conclude every day of the week that all forms of abuse, oppression, spiritual darkness is so much more common than we realize most often in the church. There's so much more of it out there than you realize. See, this slave girl needed community on mission. Initially, she didn't need answers to her intellectual questions. Initially, she didn't need a divinely orchestrated earthquake. Her life is enough rubble and mess as it was. She needed freedom. Those other things may come later as God, by his grace and his love, works in her and through her. She needed to hear the gospel and believe. But at that moment, she needed release. She needed freedom. She needed loving community around her. People can't be freed into nothing. We see this in our own context as well. We can't expect people uh, that we reach with the good news of Jesus to step out of uh, their life into nothing, no matter if it's their lifestyle or their culture or their background or whatever. They can't step out of that into nothing. They step from darkness into light, from one community into another, into new life, into real life with different faces, new faces. That's why, folks, evangelism is community on mission. We are and are growing to become a church based on love and acceptance, where we have value and honor for one another, where we care for each other, where there is forgiveness, where there is grace at work. We're patient with one another. We trust one another. We tell the truth to one another. But it's all there, bound up in this idea of community on mission. And it's into a community just like this that someone will be open to hearing and receiving and growing in the gospel of Jesus. Evangelism is gospel-centered, it is spirit-empowered, and it is community on mission. And I just want to emphasize, as I did at the start, it's not three different types of evangelism. We do this all together because these are three different facets of the same thing. Evangelism is all of these three, comes as a package, it comes as a whole. So as we close, my challenge to you this morning, especially if you are a regular here at Foundation Church, my challenge to you is how are you doing at those three facets? gospel-centered, spirit-empowered community on mission.
Is that you? Are you characterized by those things? Are you gospel-centered? Are you learning more? Are you loving more? Are you investing more in knowing and hearing and understanding and receiving the gospel of Jesus daily in your life? That's a load of questions joined up. That's one big question. Are you spending time with Jesus in solitude? Are you spending time with Jesus in community? Are you spending time with Jesus as a family? Are you spending time with Jesus as a church? Are you becoming more and more in love with Jesus? Are you gospel-centered? Spirit-empowered. Are you doing spirit-empowered evangelism? Paul writes to the Ephesian church, teaches them and says to them, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's an instruction. And so what he means by that is, are you open? Are you active? Are you hungry for all that God offers by giving his spirit to us as a church, personally in your life, for our church together? Are you hungry? Perhaps you're not. Perhaps you need to think more. Maybe you need to read more on the subject of the Holy Spirit and his role within the local church today. Gospel-centered, spirit-empowered. Thirdly, how are you doing at being community on mission? Because that's the, that's the wrapping, right? That's the context for all of this. I've actually ordered you, it's not here yet, I hoped it would be, it's not, a book called Compelling Community. And it gives a great vision, it just sort of um, riffs on some of these themes that I've set out about how attractive and how beautiful the Christian community should be and can be when Jesus is at the center and the spirit is working. And it commends that faith to the world and uh, it is a place of great transformation. So I want to give that to you next week if you're back with us. But how are you doing at Community and Mission? I, I, as, as the leader, I'm creating structures. I'm trying to, trying to build a framework, if that's our meetings or our, our foundation communities and all that stuff. But folks, that's just trellis. That's just the structure. That's just the support network. You are the vine. And I'm trying to help you and us grow as a community up that trellis to grow more and more and to flourish more and more. And so my question to you is, are you leaning in to community on mission? It's not just an added extra or something for those kind of people. It is the way God desires and intends for us to be together. No one size fits all. Tell the gospel, be empowered with the spirit, live in community. Those three things, do them and you will do well.